The scripture this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All right. Um, okay. So... How, are you good? Are we good? Yeah, I can't see you at all. Totally blind. Love it. I like the lights being this bright. It's good because I can't see anything. Um, so this passage today is, is a little longer than normal, and I was originally going to cover the entire, um, the entire passage. As it turns out, there's so much stuff in there that that would be impossible in the amount of time we have. Um, so I was going to divide it up into two, uh, a sort of a two-part uh, series on suffering. And as it turns out, this morning, there was so much teaching that I actually cut the last half off of the sermon as well and went into a lot of detail on the first of it. So this may be a two-part, three-part, who knows? We'll just, we'll just keep it moving until we're out of material here, and then we'll land the plane. So, um, yeah, so uh, I, I don't know how far we're going to get today. Um, uh, we're gonna start, we're gonna start in verse 12 and we're gonna get probably maybe to verse 14, if you will. But, um, I, this, this is gonna be a little heavier than normal, this, uh, this sermon. Um, I know it's Father's Day and I don't wanna bum everybody out, um, but I'm going to. So, uh, no, this is, it's a sermon on suffering and, um, there's a lot of things that I think a lot of you need to hear. I, I know there's a lot of you going through difficult things. I know there's death and there is illness and there is um, betrayal and there is reconciliation that needs to be made. And, and there's all kinds of things that a lot of people who, who gather in this room on Sunday mornings and, and in the house churches throughout the week um, are going through. And so this morning, um, we're going to look at what Scriptures has to say about suffering. And the interesting thing is the Scriptures don't actually tell us why bad things happen. It doesn't actually look at you and say, well, here's why this is happening to you. Um, but it does something very different. It gives us perspective, and it instructs us as to how we should walk through suffering. And so I'm going to pray, um, and then we're going we're gonna to get into this and start talking about this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to gather here to be called Christians, to bear your name, to be called the body of Christ, to carry on your work. I ask that you would calm our hearts and our spirits, that you would make yourself very um, present to us, that it would be obvious that you are here and that you are loving on us intensely and that there is nothing that we could do to make you love us more or less. And let us sort of keep that at the forefront of our mind with whatever we are going through. There are heavy burdens 
There are difficult things. There are worries. There's anxiety. There's all kinds of things that are um, not allowing us to be to be free, to be joyful. So give us some perspective this morning. Teach us how to walk. Teach us how to uh, view things. Thank you for what you've taught me. I ask that you would give us exactly what we need for exactly where we are. Maybe there's somebody that um, that we know of. If we are not suffering ourselves, that there's somebody else, that maybe there's something that we can take here to them and some way that we can be around them that can encourage them and help them walk through difficult times. And lastly, thank you that you are familiar with suffering, that you know what we're going through. You saw it coming. And you have suffered yourself. We love you, God. In your name. Amen. So uh, it's interesting. Whenever um, we, I feel like, and this is going to sound incredibly stupid and arrogant, um, I feel like whenever I'm studying something, that subject plays itself out in real life. And, and, <laughs> um, and somehow I feel like it's just God giving me what I need, and maybe for a few of you what you need when things are going on. And so I remember a, a while ago when we were going through the book of James, we got to a passage on death, and then death happened in the church. And then um, this week we opened about suffering, and then you turn on the news this week, and there's intense suffering going on. And so uh, also over the last few weeks, there's just been, we've just been close to a lot of suffering in our community, with our friendships, uh, people that we know, people that we used to know, um, all kinds of things that we're, that we're feeling. And so this is, I, I think, uh, the perfect thing to talk about today. Um, and, and like I say, we don't allow Hallmark to determine what we're going to te- teach about here. So we're going to talk about the passage. Um, and so we're going to start here in verse 12. Um, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Um, this is an interesting way to start. He says, don't be surprised that things are happening. Now, we, we like to read the Bible through a modern-day evangelical lens, and we like to say the Scripture is touching, talking to us, and so it's telling me that, that because I'm a Christian, suffering is going to come upon me. Um, that's good. That's fine and dandy, but I, I want us to remember the context in which this was written. Um, this is not just a generic letter to the world. This is a letter written by a man who went through intense suffering and and was entering into intense suffering and the people he was writing to were also in intense suffering. It was written under the um, the shadow of this man. His name was Nero. And if you were at the beginning of, of our study in, in Peter, then you will remember this. Nero set fire to Rome um, or allowed it to burn, a fire that started maybe encouraged it to burn so that he could expand his palace, so that he could build a center for new games, which eventually became the 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 grounds of the Roman Colosseum. Um, and he blamed it on the Christians, and so the Christians became the outlaws, and people hated the Christians, and they were chasing them down to the edges of Rome. Uh, so Peter writes to the Christians in the dispersion. They've run for their lives. That's, what, that's how he kind of starts his letter. Um, these were people that knew that things were going to get very difficult. I mean, it starts off, don't be surprised at the fire trial when it comes to test you as if something strange was happening. He's saying, we all know what's coming. We all know what it's going to be like. We've seen it before and we're about to see it again. And, and, and we are terrified and we'll admit that. And it's going to get very bad. But he has some things to say. Um, it's always interesting when you, when you talk to people who are in suffering, who have lost a loved one, and you, 
you hear them say things like, do not quote scripture to me right now. That is, or you hear the, you know, the general, the atheist um, arguments of, of there's, there's, you should not be quoting scripture right now. You should not be putting scripture on, on monuments for people that have suffered. You should not, the Bible has nothing to offer us. Um, I would argue there is more in here that you can take than anywhere else in recorded history. Why? Because these authors were in intense suffering for decades until they wrote these books. And after they wrote these books, they were in suffering for decades. The author of this letter, Peter, was arrested, jailed, and then ended up being crucified because he was a follower of Jesus. Um, and when he was being crucified, he said, no, 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 I'm not worthy to die like Christ died. Crucify me upside down. And they did. And that's how he died. Um, and there's lots of books um, in the scriptures in the Bible that were written for people in suffering by people in suffering. Um, the letters to Corinth, um, Revelation. We know that the early Christians also read the book of Mark. Um, uh, it was Mark was written about the same time, maybe the same, possibly the same year that the book of Peter was written, um, and. It was written by someone and for people who were all entering into intense times of suffering. Um, and here's how this ended up looking. They knew what was coming. And uh, eventually, it got so bad under Nero and then under his successor, Domitian, who, who just really ramped up the punishment um, against the Christians, was that he would... Um, he sent out troops to go door to door and knock on the doors. And they would say, are you a follower of the Christ? Are you a follower of the Christ? And if you said yes, then you and your family was arrested and you were brought to the Colosseum or whatever arena for Roman games was in your city. And you and your family were brought into, out into the open and chains were put around your waist and the other end of the chain was staked to the ground and wild dogs were let loose on your family and they would always allow, allow the, um, the families to die from youngest to oldest so that they would watch as their families died. All because they said, yes, I'm a follower of the Christ. And so this is not modern Christian persecution as Americans talk about. This is not an angry bumper sticker. This is not um, um, some denial of tax exempt from the IRS. This is not um, uh, being denied a job or job discrimination because you're a Christian. This was actually, are you a follower of the Christ? Yes. Okay, then your children are going to be fed to dogs, and then you're going to be fed to dogs. This is persecution. This is suffering. And it's bad. Um, and so he says, don't be surprised when this happens. It is going to happen. And it's not strange. We expect it now at this point. And this is what he says to them. And this is how this, this letter kind of starts. Um, the authors of these books wrote them while they were suffering, and yet they are filled with intense joy and meaning. And it's, it, there's this question there, well, how did they have this joy and this meaning when they were suffering like that? We've never suffered like that. How can they do that? And so they want to open, open it up and sort of give us some hope and, and give us some perspective as to how they could write what they wrote while going through what they went through. I would, again, argue that this is, scriptures are the most adequate thing to quote at funerals or two people who are suffering. Um, so the first thing he says is this in verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. Rejoice as, in, as insofar <clears throat> as you share in Christ's sufferings. Now, um, you hear the word rejoice and you're like, oh, so like be happy, play some songs, jump around, 
while I'm suffering, yippee. Like, that doesn't make any sense. That's not what I'm feeling. Um, that's actually not what it means at all. The word rejoice is the word Cairo. Everyone say Cairo. Cairo. All right, well done. Um, this word does not, it's not about emotion. It's not about happiness. It's not about, like, smiles. Um, it, it actually is used, actually, in Second Corinthians, in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, who was suffering, and he puts it side by side with sadness. He says, although saddened, we are always rejoicing. How can you be sad and rejoicing? That sounds like a mental problem. Um, it doesn't seem like it makes any sense. It sounds like someone on The Bachelorette who's like, I'm feeling every emotion possible. <laughs> Me and my wife always laugh at them. I'm happy, I'm angry, and I'm rejoicing. I don't know. Um, this weird thing. And somehow we're supposed to rejoice and be sad at the same time. This doesn't make sense. No. Um, rejoicing has to do, really, it's, it's a word that has to do with well-being. It's sort of an idea that says, rejoice. Stop. Ponder the things in your life. Look at the things that are good. Maybe you have your health. You have people around you who love you. You have um, hope. You have a history where you've walked through difficult things and you've seen other people walk through difficult things and you can look and you can see that they're okay. Um, it's about well-being. It's about like stopping and being aware and thinking. It's awareness of who you are and your well-being. Now, um, how is it that you can stop where you are and say, well, I have well-being? How can you do that? Well, he actually, he takes now and he points to the future. Um, he takes this idea of rejoice when he goes a little farther here and he says that you may also... Rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so there's this idea that um, a future is coming, a day is coming when the glory of God will be revealed and you will see as he sees things. You will know things as he knows them. And it will, it will kind of make sense to you. And you know that one day you will be okay. Because again, the idea of Christianity is resurrection. We know that things will eventually, that God is taking this somewhere and his ultimate plan is to fix everything. And so we are looking at a day for, uh, in the future where, where we are okay, where we do have well-being and shalom and peace because of the grace of God. And so, so he says, even if right now you cannot think about your well-being, you know a day is coming when you will be okay. So he says, I want you to kind of reach forward and take that hope. I want you to bring it into right now. I want you to reach forward, realize you will be okay, and say, well, I'm not now, but I will be, so I'm going to take that here and I'm going to lean on that. It's hope. That's all we have. And um, C.S. Lewis actually talks about this as it goes the other way. I mean, uh, whenever you read, read the Israelite, um, any, anytime God is speaking to the Israelites, he gets up and he says, um, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, just a reminder. Um, and so now I'm going to give you some commands. And why is he doing this? He's reminding them. Um, they had a lot of problems and a lot of doubts and a lot of sins in their life, but they were still God's people. And the only way they knew that they could follow God was because every time they followed God, things went really well. And every time they didn't follow God, things went really bad. And so there's this sense in which the only reason they're okay now is because they can look back and see that they were okay then. And we have this future that we can look forward and see we're okay then, and we we were okay back then. And so there's this idea of, of what you need when you need it. Like right now, if you are okay, and dwell in that moment. I, I had a phone conversation with somebody um, who I was speaking to, and they said, I said, how are you doing? And they were going through something tr- just tragic, family being torn apart. How are you doing? I'm okay right now. And I said, good. That's all that actually exists is right now. Yesterday doesn't exist anymore. Tomorrow doesn't exist yet. You may not even be here tomorrow. Um, 
right now is all you have, and that's all that exists, and you're okay. Be that. And if you are not okay, just know that there is hope that one day you will be. And then C.S. Lewis has this idea where he talks about how before he was a Christian, he was an atheist, and, and he has a lot of doubts now that he's a Christian. He says faith is the ability um, to look back on a time when things made sense and holding on to that. Um, the way he says it, I don't remember exactly. I didn't write it down. It just popped in my head that he says, uh, faith is the art of holding on to things that once made perfect sense to you, despite your changing mood. So right now, yes, you're having doubts, but you can look back and see a time when, yes, it made perfect sense. There, there was a time when I committed my life to God and to be, being a follower of Jesus because it, it just made perfect sense, and I was thinking clearly. Now you're not thinking clearly, and you're suffering, and you're just angry. You have a lot of emotions, and so faith, or maybe you have doubts, and so faith is, is looking back and saying, I'm not going to, my faith, I'm not going to root that in right now. I'm going to root it in that, what was. Sort of an altar. That's why the Israelites built altars all over the desert. So that every time they pass by, they would remember this happened here. And if we can't remember what happened, then it really takes away a lot of our ability to cope right now. And so he says, whatever you need is there. Maybe it's back there. Maybe it's up there. Maybe you're there now. But there's something that you can focus on. And then... Uh, he uses the word glory. He says, and be glad when his glories are revealed. Glory is the word doxa. It means light, unchanging essence, sort of eternal perspective. It has this, this um, idea of otherness, kind of like holiness is, is different. Um, sort of doxa, glory is, is not what we have. It's that God has, he's outside and he has this perspective that we don't have. And so he can see that. He can see that and he can see this. And he has this view. Um, the idea there is light. In other words, the light. Someone, it's like you're in the basement and the lights were turned on and now you can see all the obstacles that you were about to break a toe on. Okay. Um, and it's sort of like God is, God is up there. He's flipped the lights on. He can see. And you know, there's a God who, who knows what this is all going to look like in the end. And you can kind of rest on that. Um, so if you ever read the writings of Augustine and Lewis, I read a lot of C.S. Lewis, obviously. Um, and uh, there's, they have this idea of God who, of a God who is outside of our space-time sort of continuum, if you will. Um, and C.S. Lewis has this book called A Grief Observed about when he lost his wife. He's a man who suffered intensely. And he, write a, he kind of leaned into his suffering and experienced it, really felt it, and wrote a book about it. Um, and he says that one of the things that helped him was the idea that God is outside of, of our story and he can see. Um, and here's how he describes it. Our life comes to us moment by moment. One moment disappears before the next comes along. And there is no room for very little in each. This is what time is like. God, I believe, does not live in a time series at all. His life is not dribbled out moment by moment like ours. With him, it is still 1920 and already 1960. That's really interesting to me. Um, whether or not this is how it works, it's kind of what Peter's talking about. Um, C.S. Lewis, in, a, in another book, he writes about how God is sort of the author of the story, and we are in the book, and he can flip back, and he can read. He can even make edits, and, and, and this is kind of how he describes it. Whether or not this is how it works, I don't know, but it's very intriguing, and it's very hopeful. It's this idea that, that God has a perspective that you don't have, but one day all the lights will be flipped on. That's how Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 2, basically, the day of the Lord is the day that the lights are turned on and you can see. And it kind of makes sense. But right now it doesn't. Whatever your suffering is, it doesn't make sense. And so one day we will see as he sees. 
Now, one of the things about seeing things from another perspective is we have a perspective that people in the past didn't, which is history. History. I'm up here, so I need to go this way. History. Um, We can look back and we can see how a lot of the good things that we have today, we only have because of the intense suffering of other people. Um, A lot of the rights that all of us have, actually all of the rights that all of us have, came about because one person or a group of people suffered or died to give us those things. And so there's this sense in which their suffering brought us good things. And we look back and we honor that through monuments. Monuments are very important. To honor those who suffered so that we could have joy. The only, uh, this is how the ancient Jews actually in the first century looked at the way God works, they knew whenever something God was going to do something really good, it would actually first have to go through a very dark time of suffering. And so the Christians interpret the cross in this way. The only reason we gather here and have communion and have this space and, and, and have the joy and the friendships and a lot of the marriages and the children that are in this place right now is because of the suffering, suffering and death of Jesus. I mean, think about that. Most of the joy that you have in your life came through the suffering of one man. And so there is this perspective that we need to have that somehow you're suffering, people are watching, and it can bless them, and somehow other people's suffering, you're watching, and it can bless you. And we are, for some reason, attracted to suffering. We, we look at it. We pay attention to it. So there's this record that came out about three months ago, and people are hailing it as like, one of the greatest records of all time. Um, I'll put the cover up here. Most of you have heard it. Um, it's a really good record, and it's about suffering. And so um, when you ask the question, what makes this record so good, but besides other records, I mean, musically, is it, is it better? Not really. Um, it's actually a poor quality of recording. A lot of it was recorded on his, some of it on his iPhone. A lot of it was recorded in his little room in, in where he lives in Brooklyn. Um, and at some point on the record, you can actually hear the air conditioner kick on and go in the middle of a song. And you're like, wow, that's... That's like, it cost him like 10 bucks to make the greatest record of all time. Um, but it's the story. And so if you don't know the story, let me fill you in. Sufjan Stevens, it's not Sufjan, by the way. Um, Sufjan is, uh, when he was a little boy, he was abandoned about age three by his mother. Her name is Carrie. The album's called Carrie and Lowell. That's Carrie right there. Um, he was abandoned by her at a young age. Turns out um, he was reunited with her when he was a little older as a boy, as a young boy. And she explained to him, look, I'm really sorry. Um, I have psychological issues and it was really bad for me to be around you. I, I would have ruined you, basically. And so because of the suffering and estrangement of his mom, it turned him into this incredible artist that has blessed all of us with this beauty and intense writing about spirituality and God and the struggle. Um, and then this, this album actually came out of the fact that she died sometime last year from stomach cancer, a long, slow, painful death, and he went and met with her and was with her until the time that she died. And so the album is all about this. It's about his suffering. And so he's got a song. Um, go ahead and turn it up a little bit. Might as well, right? Um, and so there's this song where he's talking about his mother dying. It's my favorite song on the record. And, and he sings in a low voice when he's talking to his mom. Sings in a high voice when she's talking to him. And there's this conversation trying to make sense of suffering. The hospital asks 
Sufyan, I would look at him and I would say, I'm, I'm terribly sorry for the suffering that you went through. But somehow, it's been good to me. Somehow, it's blessed the rest of us. There is a perspective which is different. Um, we as human beings, uh, researchers tell us that we are attracted to suffering. Um, why do you think sad movies do, do so well? Why do you think we torture ourselves by reading really sad novels and sitting through movies where we just bawl our eyes out? Um, research actually tells us that being a witness to tragedy makes us feel happier across the board. Makes us love our children more. Makes us love our spouse more. Makes us love our parents more. Makes us love our joy, our, our, our job. It, it gives more joy to the mornings waking up and seeing the sunshine. Somehow watching other people suffer does this to us. There was actually a, a period of time in my youth when I was about 16 where it was socially acceptable to watch Titanic in theaters 12 times. <laughs> I never saw it, by the way. Um... People would just go torture themselves watching a frozen Leonardo slide off a board into the water <laughs> and just, why? Um, I did, however, see the notebook. Cried like a four-year-old, all right? And you walk out of the movie and you just say, life is so precious, life is so important, life is so good. Um, suffering does something to those who are near it and who witness it. It changes things. Um, <clears throat> the tragedy that happened Wednesday night in Charleston. So what do we do with this? What do we make of this? I don't know. I don't know why God would allow that to happen. I don't, but I, I can, here's something I've picked up on. The last couple of days when I've gone to the grocery store, I've been out in public, there's been uh, a different vibe. Maybe you felt this. Maybe you have felt this. Um, there's this sense of, of I have this, I, I, I have a more humble stance towards the African American community. And I, I, I kind of, when I'm around them, I'm, there's this vibe that's coming out that's just like, I'm sorry for your suffering. And any part that anyone I ever know has, has ever played in it. And then I feel this bit of a sympathy. Everyone's just nicer and, and smiley and they're looking each other in the eyes. And, and I'm getting this vibe. I, I know that's not all of you. And whatever it is that we're feeling, I remember the, the, the shooter said, I, I, I'm going to start a race war. And then what happened, you see these shots of a convention center and people of all nationalities from all over the world just hugging and singing songs. And so whatever he was trying to do utterly failed. And I don't know how to describe what I feel, but I know I didn't feel it on Monday. 
whatever is happening, tragedy has a part in it. But we don't want tragedy. But we want the good. And so what do we do with this? It's the, it's the sense that when um, all you have all these things that are super important to you, you got to pay these bills and, and there's just cars in the shop and there's all kinds of things going on and you're a little stressed out and then you get a phone call from the doctor and says, hey, I need to see you. Some test results came in. And then suddenly none of that matters. There's this progression we kind of sometimes have to go through before we can adjust. Um, Winston Churchill puts it like this. Death is the tuning fork of life. Um, this piano goes out of tune on the reg, okay, all the time. It gets hot and cold in here, um, and it's just hot, cold, hot, cold. And so we have to pay a guy to come in with a tuning fork, and he hits it, and he hits a note, and then he takes a wrench, and it sounds like it hurts, and he's like, and it's like stretching these strings out, getting them in tune so it can play the way it's supposed to play, so it can make sense of music. And this is your life. Things are get, get hot, they get cold, they get hot, they get cold, and there's so much change, and you're so busy regulating all the temperatures, and, and stuff like your job tends to take the most importance, and then stuff like your children tends to just kind of drop off the, off, the, uh, off the chart list and move down, and there's all these things that are so important to you until the tuning fork of life goes dong, and you get stretched, and you realize, oh, this is not, no. It shouldn't sound like this. The tuning fork of life. That's what death does. Um, let's talk about weddings. I've been to tons of weddings. I'm a pastor. I've done like 40 of them. Um, it's gotten to the point where I think a lot of the married couples in this room, I was either at your wedding or I played a song at your wedding or I did your wedding. Um, and it's great. These are the best times that I can remember. Weddings. Love weddings. Um, and I look back and I think of all the couples and I was like, that was their wedding day, and that was their wedding day, and it's great. Um, one thing I've noticed is that sometimes uh, there's family strife at these things. Sometimes there's a crazy uncle, or there's a, there's a momzilla, or a bridezilla. Um, there's rarely a dadzilla. He's just kind of like, whatever, write a check. And just, um, but there's, sometimes there's a lot of family strife, and arguing, and people just saying dumb things, and just to make you mad for no reason on your, on your wedding day, um, and what is supposed to be one of the most pinnacle moments of your life, um, Uncle Jerry's getting smart, and he's ruining things, and you're fighting, and you're like, get him out of here. It's your wedding. Um, and then there's these other weddings that I've done, I've been to, where there is... It's different because there's an empty chair in the front row where someone was supposed to be sitting, but they are no longer with us. And the family is well aware of the suffering that the family has gone through, and their life has been tuned by suffering or death or illness. And the wedding is different. Nobody's being selfish. Nobody's caring about themselves. They care about the day and the celebration of family and life. And what separates the good weddings from the bad weddings is oftentimes suffering. And I've seen it. Dad should be there to walk you down the aisle. Brothers and sisters should be there to witness it. Grandparents should not 
be in the hospital when their granddaughters are getting married. And there's this sense that the suffering that you are going through makes the day better. Um, the trial is really important. And the perspective of the trial. Look at how, look at how, for, how Peter describes trial. He uses interesting words. Beloved, we're going back to the first verse again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. There's a lot of words that scriptures use to describe suffering, and it's always like this. There's refining, which is melting down things to get the impurities out, um, pruning, going up to a bush uh, and just, just trimming it all to pieces so that it can become healthier, testing, um, obviously, um, this can take on tons of forms, um, trial, which is what is used here, um, and there's tons of other words that are used to describe the process of suffering. But they always have to do with crushing, burning, cutting something to make it more healthy, and better. This is where it always is. Um, so let's talk about this. Um, this is silver. This is what we call it. Um, this is, it's been pulled out of the ground, and you hold it up, and you look at it, and, and, and we call it silver. This is, this is what it's called. And, and you ask the questions like, well, how pure is it? I don't know. Well, it could be very pure, right? Sure, it could be very pure. It could be like really impure and have like maybe 5% silver in it. You're right, but we still call it silver. Um, so how do, you, how do you find out how many impurities are in this? How do you get the impurities out? Well, you melt it. You burn it. You heat it up, and they become obvious. They flow to the surface. And you see them, and you say, there's some impurities right there. Things got really hot. There's some impurities. Scrape them off. Call them out. Scrape them off. And then, and then you can do it again. And you can do it again. And every single time you do this, you're going to get a couple more impurities. Um, so let's talk about you and I. You and I, we call ourselves Christians. If you're a follower of Jesus, the name that you are given is Christian. Um, how many impurities are in your life? I don't know. I can give you a piece of paper and you could start writing. You're going to fill it up pretty fast. Um, and no matter how long you write, there's going to be some that you miss because you don't know how many impurities are in your life. How much idolatry, how much lust, how much racism, how much hatred, how much is there? You don't know. How do we find out? When things heat up, it floats to the surface. Have you ever said something or done something, you're like, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that. I cannot believe I reacted that way. Have you ever just felt yourself getting really hot and angry? The trial has brought something to the surface, an impurity to the surface. And the trick is to be aware and to just pay attention to the impurities that are floating to the surface during the trials of life, during the sufferings. Whatever you're going through, how angry is it making you? Um, what is it? What are you saying in response to it? What are you doing? Look at how you're reacting to things and just, just be aware for a few minutes of your day and say, why do I feel like this? It was that, that happened, and that brought this out of me. And name it, that was lust. That was racism. That was malice. That was bitterness. That was deceit. And name it and scrape it off. And you never would have known that these impurities were in your life had you not gone through the fire. You never would have known how weak you are in the area of lust had you not been tempted. You never would have known how much of a racist you are until this event happened. 
And so the trials, according to the people who are going through intense suffering and writing about it, this is what they do. And so they don't tell you this is why trials happen. They tell you, here's what happens, though, when trials happen. You and I are we're Christians. How many impurities are in your life? You don't know. But you know what? You're still a Christian. And the work of sanctification begins, and it starts, starts its work in your life. And the trick is to be aware. You have to be aware. You have to be present. So, so many of us just coast through our day, and we let ourselves feel whatever emotion is just popping up inside of us, whatever it is. At some point, if you want your life to change, if you want to find joy in your life, if you want this sense of, of peace and love for your fellow man, um, you're going to have to start paying attention to your own life. And when these things bubble to the surface, say it. That was idolatry. And I want that gone. And scrape it off. I read this week that if you ask silversmiths, how do you know when silver is actually pure? There's not like a... I mean, I guess now there's all these chemical tests you can do or run under laser beams and all this stuff. But uh, for, for centuries, you know how silversmiths have known when silver is pure? When they pick it up and they can look at it and they can see the reflection in it. And so God is putting us through the fire and his ultimate goal is to see his own reflection in us and so that we can see the reflection of God in each other. You know where I saw that reflection? This week, when that murderer was standing in that room with those two guards and the families of the victims who were killed stood there and said, I forgive you and God forgives you and I'm sad and I'm hurt and I'm suffering, but I forgive you. They said that. They did that. That is what a Christian is. How often is that displayed for the world? You know what's displayed for the world usually? Really bad ideas and teachings about who Jesus is. That is who Jesus is. And apparently their lives have been filled with so much suffering that we can look at them and see the image of God on those people. And so this is what suffering does. And we don't want it. We don't pray for suffering, but we pray for wholeness. We pray for God to purify us and change us. And I want you to be aware of what you're praying for. But I don't want you to stop. And I'm not going to stop. And when things get difficult, we should lean into it. And we should write about it, and we should talk about it. People need to hear it. People, need to, people are watching because they want to know how they're going to handle it when it happens to them. And I hope they can see the image of God in us. We're going to take communion um, right now. And um, our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and get ready. And... Um, Communion is the time that we remember the suffering of Jesus. We remember the cross. We remember the trial. Uh, we remember his burial and the mourning that his followers felt. And we also remember the resurrection. And so in this time, we take some bread, symbolizes the body of Christ. This is what Christ gave us to remember him by, is the bread and the wine. And so we take the bread and we break it. Um, it symbolizes the body of Christ broken for you and me so that we could be reconciled to God so that good things could come out of his suffering. And then we dip it in the wine and we cover the flesh with the representative of the blood, which is the wine. And we eat it and we take it inside of us and we say, God, I know you suffered for me.
Thank you. I remember your suffering, and I want your suffering to your gospel to enter into my heart and touch the parts of my life that need to be touched with your gospel. Because I have impurities, I have sins, and I want to get them out now before they come out some other way. And so we're going to take communion. And uh, you guys can go ahead and spread around the room if you'd like. Um, and take some time and talk to Jesus. Ask him to reveal to you in this moment some of these things so that you can repent of them and change them. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your suffering. Thank you for what you did for us. We call down for your mercy. Have mercy on us. We are such sinners and we have so much impurity in our lives that always shocks us when it comes to light. But whatever is in the worst mass murders in the world is also in us. And we want to stop it before it grows, as evil does. Make us whole, sanctify us, make us like you. We love you, Father. In your name, amen. Take some time and uh, talk to Jesus.